Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief of Variety. Today, my guest is Jessica Lesson, founder and editor-in-chief of The Information. The Information is a subscription online publication that has distinguished itself for its deep-dive reporting, analysis, and scoops about the media and tech landscape. Lesson is the sole owner and sole financier of the business. While working as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, she saw an opening in the journalism market for more thoughtful long-form reporting. Her instincts meant that she has been in the business of launching a subscription business, just as the company she covers went headlong into the subscription direct-to-consumer arena. Jessica offers insights on what she's learned along the way, and she offers her perspective on what's ahead for Silicon Valley stalwarts, including Facebook, Google, and TikTok. Jessica Lesson, founder and editor-in-chief of The Information. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for chatting. When we set this up, it occurred to me that you're in a very interesting position because you have been you have been an entrepreneur who has launched a digital subscription business at a time when a lot of the big media and big tech companies that your company covers are also doing the same and i would love your perspective on somebody that has been literally trying to grow a subscription business from the grassroots what you've learned over the past, is it almost eight years now since you launched yeah, it information? Is. Um, what you've learned over the past eight years about what it takes to attract subscribers, retain subscribers, what is the sort of secret sauce, as it were, in the subscription game? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I guess we went D to, D to C in, um, in media um, about eight years ago when people probably thought we were a little bit nuts too. And um, not that we were kind of unbundling the news, but we were to some degree, but really that focus on um, living or dying by serving subscribers and making sure that we're, our journalism is tailored to what they need um, has been part of our DNA since day one. And I think it's been fascinating to see the the media business um, embrace that now um, and, and really in some ways be upended by it and in some ways embrace it. So I think for me, the thing that has been most essential to our growth um, has been frankly just focus and trying to not cover every single way, bit of technology news at the moment, but really an insight that our job is to deliver deeply reported stories no one else is writing. And that that is enough. Not only is that enough, but I, I believe deeply that is what makes a successful media company. Right. And I think for us that meant breaking news about Apple and Google and now, you know, Warner Media and Quibi and all the others. But it, um, it I think is very much against the DNA of many media businesses where um, we want audience, we want to reach people, we kind of believe bigger is better. But what I've seen in our experience at the information is that what drives new subscribers, retaining subscribers, is really building a brand of media that isn't all things to all people. And, and if you look in entertainment, I mean, I, I think you can, you can look at the history of Netflix and draw many lessons, right? In the beginning, it was library content, but it was right. really very specific shows, right, that, that got it going. 
And then it was House of Cards, right? And and it wasn't, you know, it's not sports. It's not, and, and we're seeing the the creeping now into other categories, but but not that much, right? Compared to what you think a company of Netflix's scale and resources could do. And so I think it's that being focused um, and in, in realizing that that is very, very scalable. And, you know, recently when um, two of our reporters broke the story that Katzenberg said he may have to shut down Quibi, which, which happened, you know, this was very top of mind for me because I think Quibi was an example of vast ambitions to really have content across an array of subject matters that could reach an array of audience types. And I think you can get there as a sort of upstart media business at this moment. But what I see with all the successful media companies now is really earning very, very passionate audiences around very specific things. Absolutely. It makes so much sense in the context of, of what we've all been covering. And I can certainly say from a p- position of great envy that you do a damn good job of writing those stories that only, uh, of delivering the stories that only you have, which are absolutely where news is commoditized, you know, essentially in, in the digital realm. It's that, that deep reporting that nobody can match. There's nothing more satisfying as a journalist than to hit, you know, hit publish on that. Um, let me ask you from a, like a more of a business and a marketing kind of sense, like what did you find, especially early on, what worked to get the word out, to even let people know that this was out there? Was it word of mouth? Was it digital marketing? Was it leaflets? <laughs> leaflets. We haven't tried that. We, we've just experimented with <laughs> our first Street, direct mail you know, campaign. Like- <laughs> so eight years in, we're, we're, we're doing some physical media. Um, you know, from day one and until the present, it's our growth is still primarily organic word of mouth based on a story we publish. And I think if you look, you know, pick a, a retailer, pick a shoemaker, right? Like to retail sneakers, you have to come up with content every day to market your sneakers. In news and media, our product is our marketing, right? From a business standpoint, and what we've done over time is we've brought on, you know, best in class marketers who can amplify that through email, um, through some sort of paid channels as well. I think email has been, um, you know, we anyone who knows the information says we send a lot of email. We do. I, I think we, we, you know, people tell us we should send even more from a marketing standpoint it, from the perspective that um, our, our readers and, and our future readers are telling us that is how they want to engage with us. Um, and so that is just an extraordinary channel. And when I advise companies now building you know, startups kind of in the subscription news space, we have a little accelerator, the information accelerator. My advice is, you know, get the email, get the email, get the email. And and I think in our history, we probably focused on that year two or three. Um, and, and you just see a sort of hockey stick when, um, even if they're not yet a subscriber, you're capturing, you know, the permission to keep communicating with them. So that if, if there was anything that really, I think, um, unlocked a new level of growth for us in the earlier days, that was it. Is there almost like a ricochet effect? Like you get one email, you send an email, and you know it probably goes out to more than more than one person in that person's network if, again, if your product is compelling, which it is. Which it yeah, is. we track, I mean, sharing, referrals, forwarding, all of that. And I think, yeah, that, that is a huge part in, in getting the, world, the word out. Um, and um, yeah, some some companies kind of 
there, there's a nice um, back and forth around like how much is a subscription business, right? What do you restrict and what do you enable for sampling? And um, we're always experimenting with that. And I think all the, the brands I watch in subscription media are, are always trying new things there too. So you can turn on and off the paywall very easily if you if you want if you have something that you think is good sampling for potential subscriber acquisition. We we absolutely can. We don't that often. Um, I I think and and this differentiates us a little bit. Um, you know I I don't see being subscription as just like a way to make money. It's really a deep philosophy that goes through what do we write and not write. What is the bar for a story? You know we charge. Um, $399 a year. That's the bar for a story, right? And so I think that saying we have multiple audiences and there's a free audience and there's a paid audience, it, it, it muddies throughout all level of decision-making um, what your sort of product is. And so we, we've taken a stance that you know, we're writing for our subscribers and people who can get professional value or enough value you know, from what we're doing but then we want people to know about us. And so that's the kind of balance. Have you disclosed the number, your number of subscribers at this point? Um, we just say tens of thousands. I mean, I, I think it's um, what's remarkable to me is that it's um, our subscription business is, is where we essentially forecast it last December. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm just very, very proud of the, the team in terms of um, the growth we've had over this year. I and mean, we've been affected in other ways and have other revenue streams, but I, I think the core business um, is just really, really humming. So really excited about that. Have you hit the magic break even point? We were break even about two and a half years in. So um, while, um, you know, in, in terms of operating the business, I, I don't, it's not a hard and fast rule and I'm you know, willing to invest if it's something I'm excited about. And um, I, I think what we found, which um, is probably not an approach many startups follow, but I found that, um, you know, the right kind of vets and investments can often, you know, make business sense a year out or maybe 18 months out or something like that. And so, you know, we've essentially continued to run the business that way where um, we're investing, but we're seeing, you know, pretty quick returns. Um, and I think it's a, you know, it just, it keeps us focused again, particularly at a time when you can chase no shortage of trends or right. things, you know, um, at the end of the day, thinking about the, the revenue and the demand from that does keep you focused on what you're uniquely good at. And I, I think we've done that well. Mm -hmm. What size of an operation are you today? Our team's about 40 um, people, about half on edit, half on the business side, engineering, product, marketing. And um, around half of our team is usually resides in our SF office. Um, but we've been growing the team quickly also in New York, where we have about half a dozen people, um, Hong Kong, uh, London, DC, Los Angeles, and Seattle. So um we're, we're not a totally remote team, but um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, we now have offices in a couple of places and um, expect to, to have more. Mm -hmm. And Jessica, are you still self-funding this entirely? Do you have any, have you brought in any outside investors? I haven't, no. That is also obviously not a path that, that, that many entrepreneurs can follow, but it sounds, I mean, it seems like it's been important to you for your independence. Is that 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I did it back in the day because I was lucky and fortunate to be able to do it. And I felt like it would, you know, set us up on a course um, to build the right business over the long term. And, you know, it's funny, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to think back eight weeks, let alone eight years. But, you know, this is the era when, you know, I guess a little later you have Andreessen Horowitz pouring a ton of money into BuzzFeed and you have a new kind of startup in digital media every six seconds. And you saw a whole wide array of venture capitalists and different types of interests. And I, I was worried about that from day one because I, I think, you know, certain types of investors, particularly venture capitalists who want, you know, hyperbolic returns within a pretty short time frame, just is not aligned, I think, with how you build a great media business over the long term. So um, very fortunate to be able to get us started, you know, as I said, about two and a half years in, basically been supporting ourselves. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll continue to, if there's a, a time to make a bigger bet and a bigger investment, we'll do that and find a way. It's very important to me that we're not um, overly conservative because um, I own the company, but I, I think when I step back and I say, what do I want to invest in and how much, you know, we have the runway to do it. And um, I, I think it's a testament to the fact that if you have a good product, you know, there is a great business, even in, in this sort of very congested time in media. Mm -hmm. And Jessica, you were a business reporter for the Wall Street Journal and have been covering business for a while. How has it changed your just perspective on, on the things that information covers by being an entrepreneur now yourself? So many ways, honestly. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, and some to some, many of our readers say, oh, you know, you, you should be more sympathetic now because, you know, so it cuts both ways, right? There are things where I think journalists maybe don't have the full picture. And then there are other things where, I, you know, I think the opposite, but I think for me, and I always come back to this one, as a journalist, when I saw turnover at a company, or I saw, you know, a team dynamic around mostly turnover or something like that, I, I always thought it was a really bad sign. Mm. And, and to be clear, it, it often is. And, and, and it's a signal that we absolutely use to like, go behind the scenes more into what's happening at a company. But I think, you know, as someone who's we're in the early stages of where we are, but we've been through many phases. You know, I, I haven't gotten every hiring decision correct. Shocker, right? I, I made mistakes. And um, we've also seen, you know, the chance to work with some incredible talent that goes on to work at the Wall Street Journal. And that's, you know, great for them, right? And so I, I think it has, as a journalist, I did not have much visibility into running the people side of a company. And I think you know, as a founder, you realize, I mean, that's really the only side that you have to get right, right? If you can, I think if you can run a team and build a team, um, you know, that's, that will make you successful. And if you can't, you, you won't. And so I think just a, a different perspective on that um, has been something I've definitely felt wearing this hat while still wearing my journalist hat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a unique perspective. Um, let's talk about some of the big, the big headline, headline things right now in, in the technology world. I would love your perspective. I think, I think for folks like me that are just a, a, a little step removed from the heart of Silicon Valley, but still paying, you know, very close attention to those companies and trying to understand what, the, what they want, where they're going. 
I know that the set, that the threat of with all the drama around Facebook and all the drama around Google and some of the antitrust concerns that it's it's that have been raised um, about about its practices. They've set the sense the threat that that heavy duty regulation or at least a regulatory push is coming to some to companies that have basically kind of operated unfettered, largely unfettered to now. What, how do you assess? Like, do you think that is there a real potential for in the Biden administration for Congress to get back together or the FCC to really impose some rules? And do you think that's needed? Would that would that help or hinder? Do you think? So I think rules are definitely needed. I mean, I, it's I don't think it's easy to come up with the right ones, um, but if you look at content moderation on the platforms, I think the the status quo of you know very few individuals making just sort of decisions, maybe based on booklets of policy for every edge case of you know what a person could say is is just not a viable way to kind of run um, you know these major platforms. Just to take one of the many policy issues, right? So um, I think you know many people are coming around to that now. The, the tech companies say they're also coming around to that, and I and I think. They're genuine in saying that because, um, you know, you have to remember that the biggest companies aren't usually the ones affected by regulation because they can prepare for it and get around it and they already have their customers or whatever it is, right? So um, I think that you're certainly going to see a slew of, of policy proposals on, you know, across the board. You know, the reality is I think there are a lot of happy people in Silicon Valley on election day or a few days later because while Biden and Biden administration certainly be tough on tech, a, a sort of Republican Senate, I guess we don't exactly know how things will shake out, but, um, you know, the sense is that there's going to be a very narrow window of, of legislative sort of overhauls that could happen. And one of the ones tech companies were most concerned about is antitrust. While you're going to see, we've seen the DOJ sue Facebook, I'm sorry, the DOJ sue Google, um, you're going to see, you know, we know the FTC has been investigating Facebook. Um, you see a slew of things um, in Europe. Um, it's, you know, I think the companies feel like they can largely win those cases into the current sort of antitrust regime. Um, but again, if you were to have those laws changed, that would be a different, different game. So, it's a strange time, you know. I think there's some relief um, just among executives in in the very very short term, but I think a lot of questions to come. Um, Europe is, you know, just sort of coming down. We've seen action on Amazon. There's more expected on Google. Um, just a, a kind of slew of things as well. So um, I, I don't think you know the question is this going to totally kill these companies or is it going to fundamentally change what businesses they're in? I think it's too early to say and probably the history of watching industries at this point in regulation probably be not. I think it ends up um, affecting things at the margins a little bit, but it's hard to see, you know, absent something like a breakup of Facebook, which again, you know, I mean, is something people have talked about and could kind of be in the cards, but I think no one's predicting there's a fast track to that kind of um, action in Washington over the next few years. You know, we can't ignore the fact that these companies have just become, you know, just kind of so incredibly sticky to, to underuse a word, right? Yeah. So 
Um, but I remember, and I think it was, you know, about a few weeks ago, right, when you saw, or you can see the peak of like frustration and, and anti whatever sentiment against these companies, and then they report earnings and, you know, they've reached just record high market caps, you know, blowing through just on the business side. So, you know, that's something we have to pay attention to. You know, in terms of digital media and platforms, the big story of the year has got to be TikTok. And, yeah. it, you know, as, as this year, you know, draws to a close, which in some, in some ways it feels like it's been 10 years and in other ways it feels like <laughs> January was just yesterday. What is your prediction for what happens with this company next year, given the craziness of what the Trump administration imposed and now the transition of power? I would love your, 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 yeah. your you know, I have the hours that I, I don't want to say that are wasted having thought about this because now it frankly looks like kind of the status quo. I mean, I think TikTok will continue to exist, you know, owned by ByteDance, um, perhaps, you know, with a greater sort of, um, you know, having to share more details with regulators and CFIUS and just sort of all those um, security kind of protocols. Um, but, you know, it's a far cry, right, from earlier this summer when it was going to be shut down every day and all my friends were rapidly downloading it and they hadn't, but they wanted to see what it was like. Um, and so it's just been such a wild ride. You know, we um, have been covering, we have a, uh, an Asia Bureau and have been covering ByteDance, which owns TikTok and, and TikTok um, for, for a very long time and actually hosted a conference with the founder many, many years ago when he was running Totiao, which was a news app that ByteDance owns even before it came. And so I've always just been fascinated um, by the company and, and also because it's really, you know, the, the fact that the big consumer story, the big media story, right, was ultimately, um, you know, from a, from a Chinese company is just so fascinating. And so you know, I, I do think that, and who knows, and, and Biden has, has said he's he's going to be tough on this as well, but I, I think, you know, the status quo is probably a safe assumption at this point. And, you know, that means, um, I think, you know, welcome and well-needed competition for for Facebook and, and others in the, the space, I think. Um, and I think we'll see in terms of, um, you know, where they can take it. I, I think TikTok has a lot of plans around uh, integrating e-commerce. Um, we had an interview today with the CEO of OnlyFans. Um, really interesting media property, interesting guy who um, doesn't usually talk to the press. But I think uh, he cited um, the sort of monetization of creators on OnlyFans is something that's making that successful. So I think you'll see a lot more of that from TikTok. So um, yeah, I, I imagine there'll be more twists and turns of the story. I don't think it's over, but um, in terms of, I, I think I saw some great commentary of like collective hours business reporters spent um, <laughs> just following the twists and turns and figuring out, you know, can the president actually get a cut of this deal and what's kind of going on? Um, but at the end of, today, <laughs> right. But you know, at the end of the day, I guess they still do need a CEO. So I can pro I predict they'll hire a CEO. Um, but it's going to be fun to watch. And then meanwhile, the parent company, which I, I think is really important, everyone uh, in media and tech continue to watch ByteDance. You know, um, the, w one of the world's most valuable private companies, if not the, depending on kind of how you count. Um, you know, headed probably for a big IPO um, in the next 12 months or so. So I, I think there'll be some, some more drama to the story. Mm -hmm.
Mm -hmm. Much to watch. Well, Jessica, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time and talking us through a lot of this stuff, your perspective from San Francisco and uh, as, a, as a digital media entrepreneur yourself is, is really unique and invaluable. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for the great questions. There's a lot going on and um, I think it's gonna be a fun 2021 in media. Thanks for listening. Be sure to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from listeners. And don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. Yeah.